This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at 8.30 or 10 a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text MISSION to 97000. Now enjoy the podcast. I'm one of those people that actually enjoys studying with a lot going around me, and so sometimes I'll, I'll study in a coffee shop. And I remember years ago, I was in New Jersey in a Starbucks doing some studying, and there was a guy sitting next to me, and he kept, like, interrupting my study, which I didn't mind it because this guy was, like, fascinating. He's one of these guys that had been, like, literally traveled all over the world, spoke, I think, seven or eight different languages fluently, and I don't even speak English well, for goodness sake. So this guy fascinated me. And I remember he said, Tim, I I like you. He's like, I'm going to tell you, if you want to learn another language, I'm going to tell you the secret. There's a secret to learning another language. I'm going to tell you the secret. I'm like, cool, go for it. And then he didn't tell me, and he like went into another story. And I'm like, dude. So then he came back and goes, Tim, I like you. He's like, I I think I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you the secret of how you can learn another language fluently. I'm like, great, go for it. And then he launches into another story. So that happened. Um, Last week, we started a series called Rhythms. And uh, in it, we talked about this idea of Sabbath rhythms. We talked about the idea of one day out of seven resting. And we said Sabbath is not uh, less than that. It's actually more than that. It is a mindset. It is, um, in fact, Jesus is our Sabbath. And I want to tell us that we're going to go another step this morning and talk about it's not just a weekly thing, it is a daily thing, because we can't have a prayer habit that centers on God without starting our day from a posture of silence. Think about Psalm 4610, it says, be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. See, we're in this culture of exhaustion that we talked about last week, And even though that verse is simple, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Uh, There's a pastor and author named John Mark Comer wrote an amazing book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in it, he talks about three inventions that changed everything. The first one was the clock in 1370. The first public clock was set up in Germany. And historians will tell you this was the point where we actually moved from kind of natural time to artificial time in history. Before this point, you kind of just went by the sun, right? When the sun went down, you went to sleep. When the sun rose, you woke up. Um, There's a rhythm to life. Uh, It's probably how people actually managed to survive cold winters without heat. They just literally slept through it. And uh, John Mark Comer points out that at this point in 1370, people um, changed. Time shifts from being a limit governing our lives to something, a resource that we steward. And that changed things a lot. But it didn't change things as much as the light bulb in 1879. Thomas Edison uh, invents the light bulb, and of course, all of a sudden then productivity goes off the chart because now it's no longer about like when the sun goes down. In fact, prior to the light bulb, the average American slept between, excuse me, the average person uh, slept 11 to an 11 and a half hours a night. I'm like a little bit jealous, in, right? And in 2013, Gallup did a poll, and that number is now down to 6.8 
hours a night. And, um, of course, since, since the uh, light bulb came, all sorts of other great inventions like um, air conditioning, can I get an amen, uh, this summer, uh, microwaves, dishwashers, laundry, all these things. Like, technology was going to save us all this time. In fact, uh, maybe some of you have heard this before, but there was a Senate subcommittee in 1967 that predicted that by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. How's that working out for you guys? Right? Isn't that awesome? Like, what do you do with all your free time? That's amazing. So, shocker, that's not actually what happened. In reality, leisure time, they were right that technology gave us more time. They were just wrong about what we would do at that time. And leisure time actually has decreased by 37%. And, um, and that was all before maybe the greatest invention of all time, the iPhone, right? 2007, Apple releases the iPhone. And what we don't realize is that actually with the iPhone, some of you do realize this, maybe some of you are overly aware of this, is that it also tracks things, right? And so they can actually track how many times you touch your phone. You ready for this? The average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day, staring at their screen for two and a half hours over 76 sessions. And yes, that includes you boomers as well, right? Now, if you're a millennial, I love picking on millennials, um, you skew the average because you literally double that. It goes to five hours a day. And if you're Gen Z or less, I, I don't even want to know, right? This has changed things. And what it does, and we talked a little bit about this last week, right? It, it gives us this sort of hurry sickness where we're not actually ever fully present. We're always on to the next thing. Or we're distracted. We're always looking at our phone. And you might call this sort of, like, we carry anxiousness with us. You ever see this? A person comes into a room and, and they've got this distract, distracted mind and they carry the anxiety with them and it just brings the level up in the room. It's because of all these distractions that we have. And so last week we talked about this idea of Sabbath is a way of declaring, remember, that we are not the bricks we make, bricking bricks. You are not a production value. You are not how many widgets you make in a day. Instead, Sabbath reminds us that our identity is in a creator. Our identity is in, in God who loves us so much and created us in his image. And we are this morning going to talk about what does it mean to abide in his presence every day, to be still, to know that he is God. We're going to look at a passage that many of you are very familiar with. It's one of my favorite passages. It's in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to talk about an encounter with God on a daily basis. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I, love, I live among a people of unclean lips, 
and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. A little bit of context here. First of all, it says in the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, king Uzziah was a, a pretty great king. He had a very long and prosperous reign. Uh, at the time, Israel was prospering both politically and from a military standpoint. Uh, lots of wealth was happening at this point. And Uzziah, I don't know if you know this, he was kind of like the Steve Jobs of his time. Uh, there's another verse in Second Chronicles where it talks about he was an inventor. He invented like this sort of weapon that was on the corner of a fort that would uh, throw out arrows and large stones. Um, but when he died, everything was kind of thrown off. The culture began to decline. Assyria, um, which was this incredible power to the north of Israel, rose up, and they began to conquer all the people around them. And uh, literally, they were on their way toward Israel, and that's when King Uzziah died. And so there's this, this cultural moment in Israel where everything feels disoriented. It felt like disorientation. It felt like we don't know what our foundation is. We don't know what our identity is. We don't know what the future of our country is going to be. I wish there was um, a context that was a little more relevant for us today, right? <laughs> right? We live in that moment right now. We live in that cultural moment. Coming out of a pandemic where many people in our country feel this same sort of sense of disorientation, of fear, of like, I wonder what's going to happen now to our country. And I would actually argue the more that we fill ourselves with um, 24-hour news networks, the more fear that we have, the more disorientation that we have, which means now more than ever we need this sort of encounter in Isaiah chapter 6, this sort of idea of waking up in the morning, being still, knowing that he is God, that he is sovereign, that he is in control. So my question this morning is what kind of God are we seeing when we wake up and have those moments? And we're going to see here three simple but I think very important principles for us. And number one is this. We see a God who is holy, holy, holy. And you may say, Tim, do you expect me to wake up every morning and have an Isaiah 6 sort of experience? I want to say, well, well no and yes. Like, no, you're probably not going to have, like, the clouds parting and, like, you know, the ground shaking and smoke and all this. It, it may not feel like that, but I do want to challenge us to encounter the holiness of God. Look again at verse 3. And they were called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you were here last week, remember we talked about um, they didn't make bricks. In Hebrew, they bricked bricks. Remember that? Um, there's another passage in Chronicles where if you read the English, it says it was the purest gold. But if you actually read it in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. It says it was gold, gold. Uh, there's a place in Genesis that talks about how they fell into huge pits. Do, the Hebrew doesn't say that, though. It says they fell into pits, pits. So basically in Hebrew, if it's, if it's not this, if it's this, then you simply just double the word. They were bricking bricks. Gold, gold. Pits, pits. Lots of doubles in Hebrew. But what's amazing right here is a three. Holy, holy, holy. Distinct, distinct, distinct. Separate, separate, separate. In a class by himself is this God. 
One of my favorite quotes is A.W. Tozer. He says, what you think about when you think about God may be the most important thing about you. As we meditate on this God that is a class by himself that is utterly different and distinct from anything or anyone else. And you might say, Tim, like, how in the world does waking up in the morning and thinking about the separateness, distinctness of God actually allow me to have intimacy with him? It's a great question. In fact, it's a question that the rabbis asked as well. So the rabbis, if you were a good Torah-observing Jew, everyone would have known Hannah's prayer. If, do you remember Hannah? When she prays to God, she prayed something pretty amazing. If you'll remember the context, Hannah was barren, couldn't have kids. She's pouring out her anger and her sadness to God, and God blesses her with a son. Now, if you're Hannah and like God has finally blessed you with a son, like, what's your prayer going to look like? It's probably going to be like this like, nice little cuddly, like, Jesus is my best friend song. Let's, you know, high five Jesus. I can't believe you're awesome. That's not what she does, right? She goes in a totally different direction. Um, again, any Torah observant Jew would know this prayer and say this prayer as a silent prayer. And listen to this, 1 Samuel 2.2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She is bursting with joy and gratitude at the holiness of God. Like, why when you feel close to God, would, would you want to talk about how separate and distinct he is? And that's exactly the question the rabbis would ask is like, that, like, what does that mean to be holy? Why does that draw us closer to him? And you know how the rabbis answered this? This is beautiful. They talked about this language of like foundations, that God is in his holiness is the truth that without this truth, no other truth exists. They would say he is the prime existence. He is the foundation. Uh, maybe you've heard the story about um, a professor that's talking about um, space and time and gravity and talking about the earth in its orbit. And um, a student raises their hand and says, uh, yeah, uh, professor, everyone knows that's not right. Everyone knows it's a giant turtle that holds up the earth. And the professor is kind of, you know, shell-shocked no pun intended, um, and he says, well, then what's under, the what's under the turtle? And the student's like, it's just turtles all the way down, duh, all right? Makes no sense, right? But that is the idea here, and the rabbis would say that God, his holiness, means that he is an existence that is more real and more true than anything else that exists. In other words, he's more real than you or I. He is different and separate, and we spring from him. We are image bearers. We are created in the image of God. And so when I think of God as the fundamental existence, as the prime existence, as my source, it moves me to an awe to see the holiness of God, and it actually brings me closer to him. Because think about this. Who could better understand me than my source? Who could better understand me than the person that knit me together in my, mother's, in my mother's womb, right? That's the God we love. He's distinct and separate, and yet it draws us closer to him. He's more real than you and I, and it says, as it says in Isaiah, high and lifted up. It doesn't say that his robe filled the temple. Check this out. The hem of his robe filled the temple. This is meant to give you an awe of this God that is so much bigger, so much holier than anything that we can imagine. 
And then Hannah says, there is no rock like our God. In other words, he is, he's the foundation in which our life is to be built upon, as we sang about this morning. And the rabbis would say this was about going from third-person distance to second-person intimacy. Holiness. Your first sense might be that, man, that just creates distance until you realize what holiness consists of. It's God as our source that understands me and loves me. My question for you this morning is, do you ever take time to be still and just to know that he is God? For some of you, I don't know if you're like me, I, I just love to see, like, God's creation, whether it's looking out at the Alps, whether it's looking out into the night sky. I, I went to um, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, and we had uh, this thing out in Jackson called, we called it the dunes. I don't know if that's what it was really called. But it was, we would just go out away from the city, or away from the artificial lights. And I remember we would sing songs and we would look up at the stars and you would see the stars just so much more clear than when we, you were in the city. And then, then I moved to Atlanta where there's like a lot of lights, right? And then, I, then we moved to the metro New York area where, which makes Atlanta look like the country, right? And I forgot stars existed. I really did. Like not like literally, but like you, you just, ne in New Jersey where we were, you just, you never see stars. And I'll never forget, we did our first mission trip to Uganda. And it was in Uganda when I realized that even our Tennessee sky is full of distracting light. Because in Uganda, you look up and you're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea that there were this many stars that are that visible. And you're seeing, shooting stars all over the place. And I'm like, this is what stars are supposed to look like. And it reminds us of how small we are. Listen, we have found ways to darken the stars in our lives. These devices, social media, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, smartphones, we have a thousand ways to distract ourselves. And when we, when we do, I have to wonder if we're not darkening the stars of our lives Maybe the idea of a vision like Isaiah seems impossible, but it's impossible because we are distracting ourselves to death and we've not created a space to sit and to ponder and to see this God that is holy, holy, holy. That's the first one. Number two is this, and we've already alluded to this. Seeing God clearly shows us who we are. It resizes us. The only way that you know that you've actually encountered this God is all of a sudden you immediately see who you are in reference to this God. Think about what Isaiah says. Woe to me. Woe, it's not just like sad as me. This is like the word, literally, it's, it's I'm, like I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm destroyed. For I'm, and he says, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Think about this for a second. Isaiah, well, he was a prophet, right? He's a preacher. What does he do? He uses his lips all the time, and yet that is the, the place where he immediately focuses. In other words, when he gets into the presence of God, the thing that he has maybe the most pride in, hey, this is my gift, this is what I do, the thing that has, he has the most pride in, he gets before a holy God, and he looks at it and he says, man, whoa, is me? I'm ruined, I am undone. And it's because of my lips, because they're sinful, I am the, the thing that I think is the best thing about me in comparison to this God, it's like a filthy rag. 
Some of you know what this is like. If you're ever, even just around, if you're an artist or a musician and you get, you go to a concert and you see someone that's just on a different level, it's this weird feeling, right? It's like, man, like it's almost, it's almost intimidating. It's like, I'm not that, but it, it just, it brings something out of us. If that's true on a human level, how much more is that true to a God that is that holy? And we see this in other parts of scripture, right? Remember when Peter encounters Jesus he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, Lord. Or Job, who says, I have heard of you with my ears. Now I see you with my eyes, and I despise myself. When you encounter this God, it resizes us. And sometimes when you look at his creation, you feel that. Did anybody see the images that came out recently from the Webb telescope a couple weeks ago? Have you guys seen that? Like, if you don't know, like, we spent billions of dollars on a telescope that makes Hubble look like it was nothing. The first image that came out was um, S-Max 0723. I think we have a picture of it up here. Um, there, we, there it is. So just to be clear, those little dots are not stars. Those, each one of those dots is a galaxy with trillions of stars in it. Let that sink in. And they said on this image in particular, if you want to get a, a, an idea of what we're talking about, if you put a grain of sand on the tip of your finger and held it out, in that grain of sand, that is what that picture is. So in other words, you move that anywhere else, you're going to get the same thing anywhere else. That is the vastness. And like even scientists are blown away. They're like, man, there, we thought there were dark skies. There's no dark skies. This is everywhere. Look at this next image. I, it's even more beautiful. This is the Carina Nebula, and um, if you get a chance to get on your computer later on and just look at this picture in all of its brightness, and then just read this psalm, because the psalmist had stars that were bright in his life as well, and listen to what he wrote. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, we have a God that is big enough to create the Carina Nebula, and yet he says to you, I see you. I see you, and my love for you is infinite, and I care for you infinitely. He didn't craft the universe in order to make you feel small and insignificant. He did it, and he shows his power and how big he is, and at the same time, he shows his infinite love for you and I. He is a God that is powerful enough to create worlds, yet detailed and thoughtful enough to knit us together in our mother's wombs. When we still ourselves and contemplate the holiness of God, it resizes us, and third-person distance turns to second-person intimacy. Do you see it? As we see the greatness of God, we're drawn to him, and then that does something different, which is number three. Our response is to be sent. I don't know if you saw on social media over the last four or five years, the secular world has a lot of cynicism for this phrase, thoughts and prayers. Have you seen this? Like, yeah, thoughts and prayers, Christians. Yep, we get it. Yep, you do your thoughts and prayers and we'll be doing the work. Now, before you roll your eyes at that, and before we get defensive at that, we need to actually understand that God himself was probably the number one critic of a thoughts and prayers Christianity that is without action. You think about Isaiah 58, you think about Malachi chapter 1. 
And God is, himself is constantly talking about how external disciplines and practices that don't lead to action, he talks about how he hates that stuff. And so the answer isn't to say, well, thoughts and prayers aren't a big deal. No, like those are the, those are the lifeblood of our faith. But we need to check this out. The pattern in the Bible is that true prayer, true encountering the greatness of God undoes us and it resizes us and it sends us to act on mission with God. That's the pattern. In other words, this type of encounter will necessarily lead to action, to being sent by God and to be in partnership with him. What we see here is not just a holy God, he is that, but he's also a God that sends us out on mission. And look at here, this God sends an angel with a coal and puts it on his lips. And what does Isaiah say? He says, here am I, Lord, send me. Okay, what's he being sent to, though? Well, we didn't read this part. But after that, God's like, I'm going to explain to you what I'm sending you out for. You're you're a preacher. You're good with your your words. Isaiah, I'm going to send you to a people that aren't going to listen to a thing that you have to say. Well, actually, they're going to hear you, but they're not going to listen. They're not going to do anything. Okay, well, how long is that going to last? Oh, I'll tell you how long it's going to last. They're never going to listen to you. And so I'm going to have to destroy them. All right, well, where's... Where does it get good? <laughs> no, no, that's it, Isaiah. That's, that's your mission. What's his response? Here am I, send me. What? Like you're going to send me on a mission and I'm never even going to get to see the fruit of that mission? Like what does it take to, to be sent and to say yes and to partner with God and to say if the fruit comes, that's great, but no matter what, I'm just going to be obedient. Like, what does it take to transform your heart and your identity to be that type of person? Well, it probably takes an experience like Isaiah have. Think, think about this. All of a sudden, the coal touches his lips. Fire represents wrath and judgment. It should have destroyed him, but this fire is coming from the altar. So you have this picture of like fire, judgment, and wrath, and sacrifice coming together and touching him on his lips. Think about like why his lips? Of all places, why on the lips? Well, think about that's where he confessed. In other words, the thing by which Isaiah saw his need for grace, the thing that he repented of, that is the point where transformation took place. It's an image of the fact that God's grace and cleansing and power comes into your life to the degree that we repent. Repentance is where God meets us. The power of God comes through this repentance. And we're told that the lips were touched by this coal and he hears a voice and he is told, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Fire, sacrifice, touches his lips and he's transformed and he's sent on mission by God. Here's my question. Why isn't Isaiah just destroyed? He's seeing an image of God. This is a theophany. He's encountering this God who's way bigger than anything he imagined. And he sees his sin. He should have been destroyed. Why isn't he? Well, where else in the Bible do you remember this theme of judgment and sacrifice coming together? Is there any other place? Well, maybe... 
If you look in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, 45, listen to this. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Remember in Isaiah 6, the temple shook. It was shaking. There was fire and there was sacrifice. And in Jesus, on the cross, the judgment of God that should have destroyed us and said, Jesus says, nope. I'm going to take their sin because I love them and I'm going to put it on me and I'm going to take the punishment that they deserve. I'm going to be the sacrifice so that they can have a relationship with this God that is holy, holy, holy. Listen, if you look at the Sunday morning experience as like your moment of the week where you're going to encounter this God and you expect that that will resize you, I want to tell you that the problem with that is that after we get out of here today, we're going right back to our phones, we're right, going right back to our distractions, and we are going to be darkening the stars in our life. But what would happen if every morning we wake up and the first thing that we do is we start out the day and we just read a psalm or read some scripture and we sit and we meditate and we do what Tozer talks about, what you, what you think about when you think about God is the most, maybe the most important thing about you. We sit and we contemplate the goodness and the character of this holy God. We wait for third-person distance to become second-person intimacy because he is our source. He is our creator. And when the fire comes down, we aren't consumed. Instead, we are sent on mission with him. The guy I mentioned at the beginning, the guy in Starbucks, Tim, I got a secret to tell you about how you can learn another language. All right, tell me, tell me. It's like simple. It's two words. Every day. That's it? Every day. He's like, you're not going to have time to do an hour every day, but the key to rewire your brain is to do it every single day. And I want to tell you, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What would happen if that was our rhythm? Every day we get up, we say, you know what? Before I get out on mission, I'm going to abide. I'm going to be still and know that he is God. And I'm going I'm to sit in his presence. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let that wash over me. And then I'm going to work out of that rest. I'm going to work out of that abiding with him as I'm being sent what would that do for us? What would that do for our church? What would that do for our community to let God resize us and to be sent on mission for him? That's my prayer for us as a church. And I love it this morning because we get to, whether you realize it or not, we get to celebrate the most important meal that you have all week won't be at a restaurant after this. It's gonna be this meal that we take together as a family right now. And I'm gonna invite the worship host up and I love this. This fits so well with this because Isaiah 6 points to a greater sacrifice, and that's Jesus on the cross. And we get to celebrate this meal where we take the bread and we take the cup, and it reminds us that the point where judgment and sacrifice come together in a, 
the most loving act ever is at the cross. And so I want to invite you to the table as the worship hosts come up. We're going to invite you to the table to take the bread and to take the cup and to be reminded of this moment, the reason that we're sent, the reason that we have a relationship with this God is because of the cross. We have tables up here. There's a table in the back. Uh, We actually have a gluten-free communion in the back left if you need that as well. We have open communion, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, whether you um, attend this church or not, we want to invite you to the table to sit and to abide in the presence of God. If you've not yet met the Savior, if you've not trusted Jesus, then we invite you to sit and to reflect on this gospel, this beautiful gospel of Jesus on a cross for you, for your sins, and trust him this morning. Let's pray. Father, you're a good God. You're a loving God. You're a God that loved us too much to simply be at a distance, to simply be separate because you created us in your image and you've loved us infinitely so much that you sent your son, you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. May we never get over that. And Father, as we come to your table today, we pray that we could encounter with you, we could have an encounter with you that changes us, that transforms us so that we can be sent on mission with you. You're a good God. We give this morning to you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Come to the table. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.